everybody. Uh, hope you're going to have a good weekend here with the extra holiday. And uh, what I'm going to talk about, you know, just to get us started is a few things, and then we'll do question and answers. You know, first thing on my mind is this ridiculous suspension of Shikari Richardson, who won the 100 meters uh, women's event in the Olympic trials and then tested positive for THC, which is, you know, a substance coming from marijuana. Turns out, you know, her mother died the week before the event. She took some weed to cope and it has nothing to do with, you know, performance. It's just a vestige of a law that, you know, on marijuana, which was first targeted at Mexicans and then African-Americans just got a racist history. And here it is playing out again. This young black woman, you know, is is a, a stellar athlete. I'm a track fan. I watch those trials. And it's just a shame. So uh, there are petitions out there. I urge people to sign them to the U.S. anti-doping agency saying, let this go. I mean, weed is legal in Oregon. Has nothing to do with the performance. Just this, you know, let her run. So that that's number one on my mind. Uh, I think it's a travesty. And, uh, you know, these old people... Enforcing rules that are out of date, you know, that, that are unscientific and just mean-spirited. So that's that's been bugging me, you know, since this came out yesterday. Another thing I'm watching is that the Department of Interior is going to be opening an inquiry into uh, what happened to uh, indigenous children that were put into these boarding schools for over a century, right up into the 1960s. And, uh, you know, we just had disclosures of many children dying up in Canada. So I'm going to be watching that because uh, a lot of damage was done and, you know, there's still opportunity for uh, and the need for reparations and making people whole. But the biggest thing on my mind is, particularly after this decision on Friday, where the Roberts court gutted Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act after gutting Section 5 in 2013. I mean, we're back in a situation like 1880s and 1890s when the Supreme Court was affirming Jim Crow voting laws that uh, excluded their aimed at black people. They also excluded about half the poor white people. There were literacy laws and poll taxes, and those were allowed to go through because they didn't explicitly uh, target black people, which would have been against the 15th Amendment. They're doing the same thing now. You read the Alito decision, it's like he's copying from these Jim Crow uh, justices back in the 1880s and 1890s. It's, it's really disgusting. And they obviously know what they're doing. So what we now have is a Republican Party that has no pretenses of democracy. They're smarter than, you know, being openly fascist and just banning all other parties. They want to rule by cheating. So... We hear a lot about the voter suppression laws being passed in all these states. That's bad. But what's worse is they're setting up elections for partisan administration where they control the state legislatures and they will decide who gets elected, whether they got the most votes or not. And that can filter right up to the Congress and the presidential election in 2024, where these ruthless Republicans are prepared to basically reject the vote from states so they can get their person in. 
and the feckless Democrats don't know how to fight the ruthless Republicans. They, they're negotiating with themselves and losing because they can't get rid of the filibuster. They can't even modify it to pass the For the People Act. Yes, we had criticisms of the public financing proposal in that bill, but it did set federal standards to make voting easier. And for all its 800 pages, it didn't cover a lot of stuff, like this new issue of partisan voting administration, partisan vote counting. You know, they're setting it up so that Republican legislatures are displacing independent elected secretaries of state. Uh, down in Georgia, they've already moved Democratic and particularly black Democratic people from county boards of elections. So they're setting it up to basically, it's attributed to Stalin. He actually probably didn't say it, but he said, I don't care who votes as long as I get to do the counting. That's the way the Republicans are acting right now. And so it's a real danger. And, and the problem is the Democrats don't know how to fight back. Uh, and because they won't get rid of the filibuster, their whole program of liberal reforms, which we support, it's not as far as we want to go, but D.C. statehood, the DREAM Act, the Equality Act, the Protect Our Right to Organize Act, the $15 minimum wage. I mean, across the board, none of these things are going to pass unless the Democrats get rid of or at least reform the filibuster. And right now, there's no indication they're going to do that. We just have about, uh, I think it's 17, 16 days left for the Senate to be in session between now and Labor Day. And they got these infrastructure bills. They got to get a budget bill together. They got to deal with the debt ceiling. I mean, they're not going to deal with voting rights. It's, it's, a, it's a real crisis. And so... I wrote up about this uh, before the Supreme Court decision on Friday. I actually noted in an article that the uh, Department of Justice had sued Georgia on these voter suppression stuff. And this is before the, uh, but, and they sued under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which says if you can show a discriminatory effect, uh, you can get that law thrown out. And the Justice Department said, we're going to show intent as well as effect. So they, they feel they have a strong case. But now that section has been gutted. <coughs> so I have an article that came out in Counterpunch this weekend called Voting Rights Include the Right to Vote for Who You Want. You know, you can get the ballot, but if the people you want to vote for are not on the ballot, then what good is that? That goes back to old boss Tweed saying, which he did say, where he said, uh, I don't care who does the electing as long as I get to do the nominating. And the system excludes the Greens, you know, by ballot access. And then it excludes people being willing to vote for the Greens under the single-member district winner-take-all plurality voting system, where you're afraid that if you vote for what you really want, you're going to help your worst enemy. And so then who does win, the plurality winner, gets all the power. And everybody else gets no power, whether you're third party or you're the smaller major party in a district. You get no representation. And because most of these districts are uncompetitive, 90% of congressional districts, 95% of state legislative districts, everybody knows who's going to win. And a lot of people don't vote. Why bother? You can't change who represents you because the district has been gerrymandered to represent the majority party, Democrat or Republican in most districts. 
in all districts, really. So why bother voting? That's why the non-voters are usually the biggest block of voters in most elections, because they know voting can't change anything under this single-member district winner-take-all system. So anyway, this article basically says we got to expand the voting rights and pro-democracy movement to cover a lot of other things, particularly now that For the People Act has been defeated and we have this, well, now we have the Supreme Court decision on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So it calls for, and you can read about this, a constitutional right to vote. We don't have that in the U.S. Constitution. We have some amendments to say you can't discriminate on the basis of race or sex, but there's no affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. As the U.S. Supremes pointed out in Bush v. Gore, where they said, uh, when they stopped the count and gave the presidency to George W. Bush, they wrote in there, there's no affirmative right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. We need that in order to enforce every other uh, legislative uh, protection of our right to vote. So that's one thing. Fair ballot access. U.S. is off the charts in terms of petitioning uh, to get on a ballot. We need access to the ballot. We need nonpartisan election administration, like I was talking about before. Every other country in the world that's a credible democracy has an independent agency administering their elections. Here we have the governing parties administering their own election. That's a sign of autocracy. And excluding parties from the ballot is a sign of autocracy. For this country to call itself democratic, it doesn't meet the standards, the international standards. The Helsinki Watch set up uh, OECD, what is it? Operation for Economic Cooperation and Development, I think it's called. They set up standards back in the 70s that were designed to criticize the old Soviet Union's lack of democracy. Well, since the Soviet Union fell, now it's the U.S. that gets criticized. And this country is so full of itself, cannot look at itself objectively. It's got to understand that it's fundamentally anti-democratic. So proportional representation instead of single-member district winner-take-all. That's in this article. Uh, abolish the Senate. Now, existing constitutional channels make that virtually impossible, but we should raise that demand because the Senate is not even one person, one vote. It distorts uh, how representation goes. A voter in Wyoming has 134 times more power than a voter in California uh, in terms of their Senate representation. It's uh, just fundamentally unequal. And it's biased toward, you know, white, rural, conservative America. Uh, and so that's the Senate. And then the Electoral College, same thing. Because, of, you know, the Senate biases the, the Electoral College vote. Now, there's a way to get rid of the Electoral College without doing a constitutional amendment discussed in that article. Um, so, and then the other thing is real public financing, full public campaign financing, not this matching fund system that ex expands the inequalities between public and funded candidates and basically excludes third-party candidates like the Greens. So that's what's in the article. It's called the right to vote should include the right to vote for who you want. And it's all counterpunch this weekend. So uh, check that out. But I think this democracy crisis, you know, we ran on three major themes in, in 2020. The climate crisis and the eco-socialist Green New Deal the economic crisis and the economic bill of rights, the crisis of the new nuclear arms race and disarmament initiatives and treaties we should uh, get involved in and demilitarization, 
But now we got a fourth issue. Just are we going to have a democratic republic, even one as distorted as the United States is? That's what we're facing right now. And uh, we just can't be on the sides. We got to fight back. I know the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Reverend Benjamin Barber. That got his first name right? Anyway, Reverend Barber or William Barber. Um, yeah, William Barber. He, um, you know, he defined it as democracy versus autocracy in the last message he sent out. He's right. And he's calling for civil disobedience. You know, I would I would urge everybody to look for opportunities to raise hell about this um, because we just can't let, you know, Republicans set it up so they, you know, what's going to happen in 2024? Just through partisan <coughs> gerrymandering alone, the Republicans are going to gain 15 to 20 seats in the House. The Democrats have a four-seat majority right now. So after the Republicans gain in the House, with the next two years of the Biden administration, nothing's going to happen. And then, you know, they'll try be trying to set it up to steal the 2024 election. Um, not that the Democrats are doing much, but the Republicans are, are worse. So we're in a serious problem here. So I've been going about 13 minutes on that. So it's time for question and answers. Lucre announcer, the number of House seats needs to be massively increased after the Senate is abolished. I think that's a good idea. We, we, you know, it was like 100 years ago, we set 434 as the number of representatives. There are many legislatures around the world that have more. Uh, I think that would give us more representation uh, per constituent. And if we're going to have multi-member districts for proportional representation, uh, you need more representatives, particularly in the smaller states. The, the bill uh, called the Fair Representation Act has been reintroduced. Recently, it would say it would require states to elect their House delegations by a uh, single transferable vote or multi-seat ranked choice voting. And that's a good bill. I think that's something if you want to talk to your representatives, particularly those so-called progressives out there that don't seem to get the democracy issue, you know, get on their case. Get them to be co-sponsors of this bill. Make it an issue. Um, now, the problem with the Senate is that the amendments clause, uh, Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution says you can't change equal suffrage of the states, in other words, two senators per state, without the unanimous consent of all the states, which is virtually impossible to do. These small, you know, imagine Wyoming giving up the power they got. They don't care about democracy. They want that power. So, but we should raise it just to expose how undemocratic the Senate is. Uh, you could have a constitutional convention which could amend the Constitution to, you know, abolish or reform the Senate so it was proportional. But that too is a long shot because it requires two-thirds of both houses and then three-quarters of the states. Uh, and so it's hard to foresee that kind of movement getting traction in the near future. On the other hand, Abolish the Senate is an old demand of the left. Eugene Debs ran on it in 1908, uh, 1912, and 190, I think 1904 as well. <coughs> and our uh, the socialist uh, representative in Congress in 1911, Victor Berger, introduced a resolution to abolish the Senate. He was in the House, didn't go very far, but it was a debate on the left. And these are the kind of, 
fundamental democracy issues that need to be part of our agenda, particularly now with the attack on democracy. So yes, let's increase the number of House seats. And uh, if we don't abolish the Senate, make it a proportional uh, chamber, not a one state, one vote kind of chamber. Diana M. Brooks, we need to force media companies to equally represent all candidates or outlaw media broadcasts of candidates. I, I would go for equal representation of all publicly funded candidates. That has been part of the full public campaign financing clean money model going back to the 1990s. Uh, outlaw media broadcasts, I, I guess that would be paid advertising. That's something to consider. Um, rather than have you know candidates buy uh, their presence before the public require the media organizations to cover them. Uh, so that's something to consider. I will note, and I got the quote in this article I just referenced in Counterpunch, Joe Biden had in his platform, and this is a leftover, I think, just from the 90s when we work on for <coughs> full public campaign financing instead of this matching funds nonsense. Uh, he said uh, he's for getting rid of all private money in federal election and having fully public funded. I mean, that would Bernie Sanders didn't even go that far. Of course, the next paragraph in his platform said, until we get that constitutional amendment to do that, we'll go with the matching fund system. So maybe it wasn't so serious, but I just found it interesting. That, that was in Biden's platform. It's still up on his campaign website. Um, and there was a time, and Biden was a co-sponsor, when senators were proposing full public campaign financing. And the clean money model said that uh, if you take the public money, for like for president, you have to participate in the debates, and everybody should have equal media time on the broadcast media to present their case to the public. So that, yeah, that has to be part of the reforms we're seeking. Elizabeth Warren. I wish you were the real Elizabeth Warren because I have a bunch of things I, on my mind I would like to talk to you about. But hi, Howie, at the U.S. Solutions Summit, you spoke about HR1. Do you think it's dead now? Joe Manchin seems to be against the parts that hurt third parties. Do you think that will be helpful? Um, I think HR1 is probably dead. I think it's back to being a messaging bill from the Democrats, uh, as it was in 2019 when they passed it, when the Senate was controlled by the Republicans. It's basically trying to show up to the Republicans for not being very damn Democratic. And, you know, it, it really depends. They could come back. They could modify the filibuster rule to deal with, you know, voting rights or civil rights issues. Um, even Manchin sometimes hints that he might be open to that. Uh, Manchin seems to be against the parts that hurt third parties. That would be the public campaign financing. I don't think he gives, he doesn't care about third parties. He does care about public campaign financing. He doesn't want it. He's very much a recipient of corporate funding. We just had this exposure of uh, his conversation with a lobbying agency uh, where I think he named some of the other senators that uh, 
We're with them on a filibuster to keep the uh, corporate money flowing. So that that's Manchin's motivation. Um, and is it helpful that he doesn't want the matching funds, public campaign finance program in HR1 in there? Yeah, it is helpful to the Greens. One of the things I note in this article is we've talked a lot about at the presidential level, they increased fivefold the, num the, the amount of money we have to raise in each state in small donations to qualify. So instead of 25,000, what is it? 25,000 in 20 states, it's now um, God, I'm forgetting the numbers, but it's a five-fold increase. It goes from 100,000, yeah, instead of 20,000 in 25 states, it's uh, 100,000 in 25 states in small donations. That's a five-fold increase, which puts it beyond the reach of uh, just about every independent third-party candidate that got matching funds since the first one did, which was uh, Sonia Johnson for the Citizens Party in 1984. Uh, that's the a judgment of Richard Winger, who uh, puts out Ballot Access News. He wrote that in uh, the cover story. I think it was a February issue of Ballot Access News. So there's that. But then when you go to Congress, you can get matching funds if you raise $50,000 in small donations in your congressional district. Well, with the help of Mike Feinstein, we went through the FEC reports, did a spreadsheet, and we can only find one green candidate out of 544 since 1990 that raised that amount in small donations. There are a couple others that might have, um, and you'd have to go through in detail because those candidates who did raise over 50,000 that we've had tended to be people that uh, were themselves uh, wealthy and, and were able to get a bunch of wealthy donors. So, you know, most of our candidates don't raise 50,000. I mean, I the best I ever did run for Congress was sixteen thousand in uh, twenty twelve. Uh, it's you know very different game for the Greens to go out and raise money compared to the money machine that the Democrats have. So Elizabeth, um, if you actually really really talk to me, I'd like it, but I'm afraid this is a pseudonym, uh, and you do need to get out and miss real Elizabeth Warren. You know, talk to your constituents. I've seen you on C-SPAN, how you interact, and you don't really. Sol Oias, which I probably pronounced wrong. Can we revive the NEED Act to give Treasury the Fed powers from private hands back to public hands? Yeah, the NEED Act was, uh, I'm forgetting what NEED stands for, but it was related to full employment. What it basically would do is, uh, remove, uh, it would put the functions of the Fed into the Treasury, uh, including money creation. So uh, instead of requiring uh, the Fed, well, the Treasury to issue bonds to cover uh, reserves created by the Treasury to spend in the economy. I mean, what happens was when Congress authorizes spending, they don't have to have the money in, the, in their coffers in the Treasury to go spend that money. They can ask the Fed to create the dollars, they call them reserves, and then the Fed gives that to the Treasury and it can be spent. But they got to cover that uh, with bonds. So that's the debt that the U.S. owes to bondholders. The other way to do it is just have the money created 
in the Fed by a, a monetary authority that then spends it directly into the economy without um, having to borrow the money and, and pay it back. Um, and what that does is give the federal government more control over the amount of money in the economy. And uh, it basically, when you understand that you can do that, then the fiscal constraints we often hear against providing people their basic needs to education, healthcare, employment, housing, are not there. When you spend that money into the economy and there's real production behind it, because it's providing those basic needs, it's not inflationary. It's just providing what the people need. So, so yeah, revive it. Uh, that's that's in the Green Party platform. And monetary reform is something of an obscure issue. A lot of Greens understand it. The Green Party of England and Wales also has the same platform plane. I think it's something we need to talk and educate ourselves about. And uh, so, yeah, that should be part of our platform. Cardiel Cash Humphreys, thoughts on New York election candidates. Okay, Green Party in New York has a real challenge. The uh, Democratic Party, led by Andrew Cuomo, attached to the budget bill in 2020, basically tripling the requirements to get and keep a ballot line in New York. So instead of getting 50,000 votes every four years for governor, they made it 130,000 or 2%, whichever is greater. In 2020, 2% was greater. That was 172 or 3,000 votes. So they more than tripled the number of votes we needed. And we came up short. So Green Party lost its ballot line in New York. And now uh, you don't only have to get it during the governor's race, during the president's race too. So they doubled the frequency. And then to get back on the ballot, the old requirement was 15,000 signatures collected in a six-week window. That means 30,000 to be safe. That's a challenging petition, but they tripled that. Now it's 45,000 signatures in 42 days. Uh, you know, basically that's gonna cost us 100 to $200,000 because we're gonna have to pay petitioners. You know, we have a lot of volunteers, but they can't get over a thousand signatures a day, uh, every day, you know, rain or not, heat wave or not, uh, snow or not, because now the petition is in uh, April and May and upstate you can get snow. So we got a real challenge. So we had a meeting of uh, 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 ad hoc group of New York Green State Committee and other activists on Wednesday night and discussed how we're going to deal with this election and agreed despite the challenges that 45,000 signatures in six weeks is, makes the New York petition probably harder than any other petition in the country. Texas, maybe he's got a case, but they have a ballot line right now, so they have to deal with it. Um, so we're going to go for the ballot. Uh, we're going to recruit a slate of candidates. Um, and, you know, my thoughts on candidates is they need to be people that will work hard and are competent. Uh, some people think we need flashy celebrities. I think that's overrated. The larger dynamic determines a lot more. I was lucky to run against Cuomo, who was a corporate centrist. The preceding two Green Party candidates for governor ran against and Stanley Aronowitz, pretty well-known academic on the left, ran against Carl McCall, who would have been the first black uh, governor of New York. So he got a lot of liberal votes, even though McCall wasn't that damn liberal. 
Um, next candidate was Elliot Spitzer at the time had the reputation of being the sheriff of Wall Street. And our guy was Malachi McCourt. Uh, I got lucky to run against Cuomo. I did much better. Not because I was nobody. I was less known than those other two candidates. I mean, we ran hard. We, you know, I think ran a competent campaign, which gave us a chance. But it was that dynamic that made the big difference. I think in 2022, the dynamic will be good for us because Cuomo's not going away. He just had a fundraiser with uh, business and labor leaders who've supported him for a long time, including one of the founders of the Working Families Party, representing the communication workers. They're with Cuomo because they can cut deals with Cuomo, despite his scandals with, uh, you know, women that have worked with him, with the nursing homes, uh, you know, sending people back sick with COVID to nursing homes, uh, and then not reporting what was going on there. I mean, and the guy's a crook. I mean, his former campaign manager is in prison right now for bribing uh, another for prominent Democrat, the son of the former treasurer of the National Democratic Party, to grease the wheels to get a gas-fired power plant through when we're supposed to be dealing with climate change. So Cuomo has weaknesses. If he's the candidate, it'll be a good year for the Green candidate. So that's one thought. Um, I just had a discussion with uh, some people in the Puerto Rican Independence Party who did well in their Puerto Rican elections the last two years. Uh, they have, you know, diaspora groups, and many of those people, you know, participate in uh, New York New York elections. I think we need to build a coalition with groups like that uh, and others to, to, you know, get uh, a diverse slate and uh, a diverse coalition so we can get the independent left back on the ballot. After the 2020 election, we are now a, what, two-candidate, four-party state. We had eight parties on the ballot line. They wiped out those parties that run their own candidates like the Greens and Libertarians. So what you got is the Democrats and the Working Families Party, who always puts the Democrat on their line, and the Republicans and the Conservative Party, who always put the Republican on their line. So you got four lines on the ballot, only two candidates. That's that's uh, it's a sophisticated autocracy. You know, one party states is pretty obvious. Two party states, it looks like you got a choice, and uh, that's what we got here in New York. We got four parties and two candidates. <clears throat> so Luker Denouncer asks, do you and or Green Party of New York support Kathy Rojas for New York City mayor? Uh, Green Party of New York hasn't weighed in on that. I know some people in uh, New York City Green groups are talking about that. But that's all I, I can tell you about that. John Ralston. What are your thoughts on the Alaska model of voting reform? Ray, open primaries with top four advancing to a ranked choice voting general election, along with some other reforms like dark money. Um, I don't like the open primaries. I think I'm not against parties having open primaries for themselves if they want. And what that means is anybody can vote in your primary, whether they're a role member of your party or not. For the Green Party, I don't think we should open ourselves up to people that you know, casually walk in, vote for our nominees, and then don't do anything, are not held responsible for the consequences. So I think members should decide the nominees and then go to the general election where we would have ranked choice voting for executive offices and uh, multi-seat ranked choice voting for legislative bodies. Um, 
I don't know what the Alaska model, if it does anything with dark money. The For the People Act did. It required disclosure of dark money contributions to uh, independent expenditure organizations, super PACs, above a certain level, which was a good reform. That was disclosure we need. And I think uh, short of, you know, a constitutional amendment that would say money is property, not speech, and that corporations are artificial entities, not natural persons with constitutional rights, which is what the We the People Amendment would do, and it would enable us, if we pass that, to fully regulate public elections. Um, short of that, this uh, dark money disclosure is a good reform, but it's not part of the Alaska model. So, you know, I, I think... The open primaries, the people pushing that think it will uh, get rid of the extremists, which is the Green Party from their point of view. So I don't think it's good for us. You know, we, we our point of view ought to get its proportional share of representation in government. And I would bet, based on uh, polling on issues and uh, some elections where uh, – the spoiler is not an effect. We're, we're at least a 20% party in this country. We probably have more greens in this country than most European countries have. And, you know, there's an independent left in this country that is stifled by the electoral system we have. So I think changing that is really the key for the left getting a foothold in our political system. So push for ranked choice voting and proportional representation. Scarcely jumpy. Hi, Howie. Since America is traditionally a militaristic nation, would there be worry of increased wartime in areas the U.S. has previously occupied? Um, so I'm trying to understand the question. Yeah, we're traditionally militaristic. That's been our whole history. Would there be increased wartime in areas the U.S. has previously occupied? So when we leave, is there a vacuum? And do the people left fight it out? Uh, yeah, that, that happens. Uh, it's going to happen in Afghanistan. Uh, but you got to figure Afghanistan was doing fine until 1978 when Brzezinski decided that uh, he would try to entice the Soviet Union into their own Vietnam by supporting these fundamentalists that were opposing the Afghan government at the time. Afghan, Afghan government at the time was basically a bunch of college kids forming these little communist party. They took over the government in a coup. Then they split and were fighting each other. So the Soviet Union was likely to get involved anyway. But we supported the religious fundamentalists. Before that, Afghanistan was modernizing at its own pace. It had a, a Shah who was a modernizer, had sort of a constitutional um, monarchy. And so in the you know cities... Women were walking around in miniskirts. The rural areas were still conservative, but that cultural influence of the cities was reaching out into the countryside. And, you know, that evolution could have continued. Instead, we started a damn war. They say we got involved in 2001, and this is our longest war. No, we got involved in 1978. And the, the war, I mean, it's been constant war since then. So, yes, if we leave... You know, the Taliban and some other groups are going to fight it out. But it's not like they haven't been fighting for the last 40, 50 years with us there. So 
I think, you know, we got to get out of these places because we, we start wars. We destabilize situations. We got to let people in their own countries work their own issues out. And so, you know, and then we got to deal with our own militarism. Let's deal with that first. You know, the idea that we got to spend almost as much as the rest of the world combined, got to have military bases all over the world, intervene everywhere, not just these open, you know, interventions, about a dozen of them where we have combat troops, but over 100 countries where we got special operations going on. Um, this is, uh, is why, you know, Pew just did a poll on world public opinion about who's the biggest danger. And, you know, you've seen aggression by the Russians and expansion and uh, saber rattling by the Chinese, but it's the Americans people are most afraid of because we've been actually engaged in all these wars. So, you know, if we want peace in the world, it starts at home. Judah Stir Stir. Hello, what should be done to restrain executive war powers to prevent illegal bombings like last week on the Syria-Iraq border? Yeah, Congress has got to step up. You know, they, for political reasons, they defer to the president. Very few of them want to take it on. Uh, they took it on a little bit with respect to Yemen, but actually uh, Saudi Arabia is still in Yemen and we are still supplying Saudi Arabia with most of the weapons they want. Um, it really, Congress has got to step up. And, you know, the Constitution gives the war powers to Congress. And, but when they just, you know, whine a little bit, some of them, about, you know, Biden really didn't have the authority to do that, or at least he owes us an explanation. And that's it. You know, it's like a statement and then they move on. So what should be done? What should be done is we need some anti-war greens in Congress you know, who aren't going to be silent about this, these wars and uh, aggression. <clears throat> Scout Trooper 164, what are your thoughts on people such as Edward Snowden or Julian Assange blowing the whistle, but being unfairly considered criminals? Well, I think the crime is that they are being considered criminals. Um, as I said during the campaign, the most uh, impactful book I read in 2019 was Edward Snowden's permanent record. He now has a blog up. He's got a good article on conspiracy theories and conspiracy practices, which I think is very insightful. Um, so I'm following him. I said that if I was president, I would have the charges dropped against him. I bring him into my administration because he understands the struggle between democracy and autocracy. And he would uh, be a good guy for setting up legitimate intelligence collecting that doesn't violate our constitutional rights and privacy. Um, so I think, you know, a, a lot, I have enormous respect for him and what he did exposing this mass surveillance of us. And Julian Assange published leaks and they're going after him. That's an assault on the First Amendment. And that is uh, very dangerous. And, and, you know, Trump, First, the Obama administration said, well, we better not do that. It's, you know, could put the New York Times in the crosshairs. Then Trump did it, and now Biden is continuing it. So the idea that the Democrats are always stand between us and autocracy is not true. This is an assault on the First Amendment. That's part of the democracy crisis as well. So the charges against Assange should be dropped. He should be released and uh, let him go about his life.
Robert Lowe, we are in dire need of a strong third party, especially now when we are witnessing the upending of our civil rights at the hands of the Dems. What do we need to do to attract non-voters and people of color? Uh, we need to be organizing at the grassroots, talking to people. They call it relational organizing or deep canvassing. You need to get outside the usual suspects, get offline. Not that you don't give it up, but you also got to go out, knock on doors, talk to people. And, you know, ask them what's going on. Don't preach at them, tell them we got all the answers. Listen and build relationships and be involved in community issues. And then non-voters don't vote because they don't trust the politicians. They don't hear from the politicians. They don't think the politicians know what their issues are. They don't trust them. They only see them maybe around election time, if then. Um, and those non-voters are people of color who have good reason to be disillusioned with the kind of representation they've been getting. If we can be in the community, building trust and relationships, being seen, being active on issues with these folks of concern to them, that's how people will trust us enough to get involved. Uh, it's not just we. It's not just we find you know some slick personality, or we have the best yard sign or leaflets. I mean that's all helpful, but it's really about building relationships into grassroots. And there's no shortcut around that. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders got a lot of people mobilized. But when it came to, say, in the South, getting the black vote, he didn't have the organization to make those connections. And Biden and the more conservative black Democrats were able to build on their church networks and so on to keep them in Biden's camp. On the other hand, Bernie did have some organizing with Latinos in the Southwest, and he did much better. I think there's a lesson to be learned there. You've got to do the grassroots organizing. That's how we're going to build a base of people that understand why we need an independent left and why they why they want to be committed to it. So, you know, we got to, we got to have the right message. We got to have uh, attractive candidates. All that's true, but without that grassroots organizing, we're not going to get it done. Scout Trooper 164, what are your thoughts on Bill Cosby being released from prison? Yeah, I, I don't think it's good. I mean, there's like 60 women made accusations against him, and uh, he got off on a technicality, uh, and it's sad. In fact, I didn't follow all the details, but I think it had to do with some Trumpy in Florida didn't charge him, and because he didn't charge him originally, then when he was charged, it was some problem technically with the law. You know, the lawyers can talk about that, but I think it's a, it's a bad message for uh, women wanting to come forward uh, when they're assaulted. Look at announcer. Do you think churches should be taxed? Uh, I do. That's one thing the Paris Commune did. In 1871, they, uh, they, uh, well, they stopped subsidizing religious schools and uh, took over some of the church properties and started financing public schools. Um, so I, I think also, I mean, we've talked about that here in my city, Syracuse, because these uh, church properties are a big part of the state, the city's real estate, and they get city services, but they don't pay for them. So I think at that, at least at that level, yeah. 
they need to at least pay for the services they're getting from municipalities. Miss Leo, Howie, how is it you're still here doing what you do after so long compared to your counterparts, counterparts that gave up into the full white supremacy capitalist colonialization? Um, you know, I wouldn't care because, I mean, when, I, when you think about my cohorts, you know, I'm, I'm what they used to call a 68 or generation of 1968. That was a hell of a year in terms of Everything that went on, kind of culmination of the new left. Um, it didn't end there. It went on into the early 70s. And most of my cohorts went into the Democratic Party. And de facto, they did accept white supremacy, capitalism, and colonialization, because that's what the Democratic Party is. They thought they would be pragmatic. Now, that's those that stayed active. Most of them, uh, they're still around. Um, and then a lot of people did deactivate. And so how is it? Well, number one, I think I have a historical perspective and I know that social movements, social change, it's like you're pounding against the door and it's not budging. And then once in a while you bust through, it happens in spurts. Um, and you watch social movements, they lose, they lose, they lose and lose until they win. Um, so just knowing that that's sort of the way it goes is one thing. Um, and then understanding how the system works, you know, having a power structure analysis and understanding how the capitalist economy works and how we got from the New Deal uh, liberalism that was a compromise between labor and capital to the subsequent neoliberal era, which was an assault on labor, um, understanding why that happened. Um, how elites pushed it, um, and then, you know, doing a class analysis, like the Democratic Party used to uh, have the trust and loyalty of working class people, white working class people included. And since starting with Carter, but really culminating with Clinton, they become the party of educated elites. And basically took the white working class and the rest of the working class for granted. And they lost a lot of that work, white working class. And they don't seem to care. And the Republicans, you know, will pander them with their phony populism like Trump. Um, but they, Republicans represent the, uh, the you know, capitalist business owning elite. Democrats represent the high educated professional elite. And the working class is excluded. So that's just an example <coughs> of uh, where I see potential. So I, I see if we can organize a party that can appeal and incorporate working class people, actually there are more of us than there are them. So it's just perspectives like that. That's what keeps me going. And, uh, you know, the independence, I mean, I had the independence from the two parties. I mean, I saw it in 64. You know, the Republicans were explicitly racist and the Democrats sat the Dixiecrats instead of the Freedom Democrats from Mississippi. I mean, that was so damn obvious that I realized that these elites really aren't any racist, any of them, either party. And then they both got in Vietnam. And ever since then, 
I mean, I could go year by year and give you a long rant on how bad the Democrats have been along with the Republicans. But I'll just point out the latest thing. They can't get their act together to get this basic voting rights stuff passed when we're in a crisis. That's your damn Democratic Party. So it's not a hard decision for me. I think a lot of people go to the Democrats and they think, oh, I got to be realistic. I got to get something done. When you look at what they've actually done, what have they done? They haven't won any major uh, domestic reforms. I don't count Obamacare. That just public subsidies for private insurance still have almost 100 million people don't have good enough insurance that they can use if they got insurance. Uh, you know, the Democrats backed up the war in Iraq. Um, you know, Biden's doing everything, as I've said, imperialism hasn't skipped a beat from Trump to Biden. So, you know, I, people can think, well, they're being practical, but what are they practically doing? They're reinforcing the status quo. So anyway, that's that's my perspective. That's how I keep going. I still got the fire in my belly because uh, I just can't abide what's going on from the climate crisis to this democracy crisis. Andy Messick, when it comes to campaigns getting donations, how do you convince people giving 10 or $20 a month can translate to success? You can't grow without money, but it seems hard to get party members on board. Well, you know, one thing Bernie Sanders showed us is that you can raise a hell of a lot of money with those kind of small regular contributions. That's what it's going to take. And it seems hard to get party members on board. Uh, you know, if party members are on board, they aren't really on board. You know, if people aren't willing to put down regular money, they're not serious. And that's why I say we got to go outside our usual circles. Go out and talk to people. Build trust. And, you know, working class people understand if they're in a union, they pay dues. If they're in a church, you know, they, they, they contribute every time they go to church. Uh, if they're in a fraternal organization, you know, American Legion, uh, you know, whatever it is, they understand this thing won't happen unless we put a little bit of money in, all of us. The idea that so many Greens have that they don't have to contribute, they're going to free ride. As far as I'm concerned, they can free ride right out because they're not contributing. They're free riding. Um, so I, I think part of it is we just got to recruit new folks that are committed. Um, and instead of trying to beat, you know, blood out of stones that aren't going to contribute. Um, so I think, you know, it goes back to building bigger bases, not just the people we got now, but systematically going out in our communities and talking to folks and recruiting. Tom Kopp, I'm a follower of MMT. Do you think the Green Party should adopt their monetary truths and bring them to the forefront of the public? Everything boils down to personal economics. I'm not sure what the last sentence has to do with MMT, but you know the basic idea of modern money theory or monetary theory is that uh, a sovereign nation that issues its own currency uh, can issue that currency to do the spending it needs to do. The limit is when you have full employment and full uh, use of productive resources, then if you keep expanding the money supply, you're going to create inflation. Um, and I think that's basically true. Um, what I do find is some of the people that follow MMT think uh, 
that this is uh, free money that doesn't have to be paid back. It's on the balance sheets of the government. And the way that, you know, we now, now spend money that we don't have is by borrowing. So there is borrowing and it's got to be paid back. And you don't want a big part of your ongoing budget to be paying interest and principal on money you've already spent. On the other hand, and MMT makes this point, it's better to invest now and improve, uh, you know, what you're producing and improve the society, which will pay dividends down the road on which you can pay off that debt. You know, climate investments is the obvious example. We can't wait. We got to build this new energy system now that is not emitting carbon. <coughs> and if we wait until we raise the money to do it, we're going to be too late. So I think MMT is, is a, a good part of the discussion. Um, and everything boils down to personal economics. I'm not sure what that means because I think it's not just what personal decisions are. It's public policy. Uh, basically determines the framework in which we can make personal economic decisions. So I think it's more than just personal economics. Video game vision question. What do you think about Greens working with DSA? I think it would be a good strategy to support both simultaneously. I know a lot of Greens are. Um, I am not for a lot of reasons, local and historical and just being already fully committed. Um, but a lot of people were attracted to DSA. That sort of became the uh, catch basin for all the, particularly people around the Sanders campaigns. And they're interested in socialism, although I think a lot of them are still trying to figure out what it is. So um, I think in local circumstances, uh, that is something that Greens can do. Um, I know DSA is about to go into convention and debating their relationship to the Democratic Party. What I'm hearing is they're moving closer to it, although there's people resisting that. Um, so I, I think it's something worth exploring. I think it partly depends on your local situation. Like the Green Party, DSA locals have a lot of autonomy, and so they're very different from place to place. Um, so as far as the Green Party nationally having a strategic orientation toward the DSA, Green Party nationally can't get a strategic orientation toward itself. Very decentralized, uh, not able to make collective decisions that can actually carry out. The real work of the Green Party is at the local and state level. So um, I think relationship to DSA has to be case by case, place by place. John Ralston, what are your thoughts on this critical race theory uproar on the right? Seems like misdirection from January 6th to me. Yeah, it's always misdirection from these people. They don't want to talk about racism. Uh, and they impute uh, positions to critical race theory that doesn't hold. It's just another way to stir up uh, culture wars and anxiety among uh, insecure white folks, frankly, who uh, they want to feel threatened by people of color and immigrants. So that's what their game is. It's a, it's a very cynical game. Uh, most of these right-wing intellectuals know exactly what they're doing. They are not dealing with any serious 
intellectual debate, but they're just trying to stir up trouble. And yeah, it is misdirection from January 6th. As if Trump didn't try to get people to go in there and disrupt the certification of the election. I mean, they're trying to, you know, bury that in history, like they're trying to bury the history of racism that critical race theory tries to give some explanations to for. So <coughs> this is something that needs to be resisted. It's anti-intellectual, anti-scientific. It's basically saying Americans should be stupid, and that's not a good position to have. Scarcely jumpy. What are your thoughts on thorium energy and could it be more efficient than solar and wind power? Nope. Thorium's been around a long time. These so-called advanced nuclear reactors are basically technologies that been around since the 40s and were unsuccessfully developed. And But they're pushing hard. I just saw Bhaskar Sankara of Jacobin had an article in The Guardian saying the climate movement needs to embrace nuclear power. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I've been in the anti-nuclear movement since, you know, really, I, well, the movement since about 1974, but, you know, came to the conclusion against nukes in the late 60s as part of the Sierra Club and uh, what became Friends of the Earth when the Sierra Club endorsed a nuke in California and David Brower took people out and formed Friends of the Earth. Um, they're too expensive, take too long to build. They're dirty. You have the waste problem. You can have a catastrophic accident. They can generate nuclear weapons proliferation. They're more expensive than renewables. I mean, you want to have clean energy. Solar and wind are, are cheaper than nuclear. <coughs> so this move toward nuclear by the Biden administration, the clean energy standard in his American jobs plan, it's not clean. It includes nuclear. It includes carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, leaves the door open for fracking to get that so-called clean gas. What do they call it? You got a name for the gas. Um, clean coal and something gas. It's, uh, it's not where we want to go. We need to go to wind, solar, storage, smart grids, energy efficiency, uh, rebuilding our production systems for clean energy and the efficient use of that energy. Uh, we need we need climate and ecological reparations around the world for all the carbon and emissions and destruction of biodiversity that's been done by the first world. And to go off on this nuclear tangent is is insane. I mean that's that's the kind of thing you know. Bill Gates has got a firm. They're looking for government money to make them even richer. Now, nuclear is uh, an industry that has not been able to make it on its own. It's always required the federal government price Anderson Act to partially insure because the private insurance industry wouldn't insure them because a catastrophic accident would be, you know, trillions of dollars in damages these days if it happens in the right place. So, no. My thoughts on nuclear is we need to shut down what we got. That collapse of that condo down in Florida, you know, made me think of the nuclear power plants. They are brittle now from all those years of radiation. They're way past their natural lifetime. The cement is getting embrittled. Uh, some of them are on earthquake faults. They should have been decommissioned already 
by the original lifetimes they were supposed to work. So <coughs> one of these damn nuclear power plants, there are 103 in the U.S. and 493 around the world. We're going to have more catastrophic accidents like that condo falling down in Florida. Nuclear power needs to be stopped, phased out as rapidly as possible, and then we need to move to the renewables that, that really will get us out of this problem. Okay, so that's an hour. I appreciated the questions. Uh, didn't have time to gather any closing thoughts, but I'm sure something will come to me here in a minute. Um, you know, the democracy issue, I, I, I come back to that. Um, we're really in, a, in, a, in deep trouble. And the Democrats, you know, they don't, it, it's like every Democrat for themselves in Congress. Those with safe seats are thinking, well, I'll be all right. Uh, nobody's really raising hell with, uh, you know, Mansion Cinema. And really, the, the Washington Post had an article a couple of weeks ago that, you know, it's about a dozen of those Democrats are happy to keep the filibuster. I think they've gone into defensive mode. They want to use it against the Republicans when they take power back after 2022. There is very little progressive reform on the table at this point. Which, you know, I guess the conclusion of that is we need the Green Party more than ever. And I hope everybody will find a way to be consistently active and do that grassroots organizing. And, you know, let's keep fighting. I mean, it's, you know, we, we can't give up. So thanks, everybody, for being here. And we'll see you next week. Love.